1990, I was an artist in residence with the Inner City Arts, and we were working in Aliso Village in Utah Street School, and I heard about this place down the road called Homeboy Industries that was getting started when somebody showed me a Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt, and they were so proud because they helped design it. And uh, I, I, for years, would run in circles with people who were working with Father Boyle, working with Homeboy. I heard about their trials and tribulations, and I was so thrilled when they got their, their new space downtown and the Homegirl Cafe, and they kept moving and growing. And so, you know, I've been hearing about Father Boyle forever, and I feel like we're kindred spirits, so I'm just so proud to be able to have him here. It's my pleasure to introduce to you one of my personal heroes, who I have a lot of affinity for, and has done amazing work, not just in our community, but around the world, and that's Father Boyle. Welcome to 501c3BS. I'm your host, Sue Velasco, director of the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at Cal State Fullerton's Mihalo School of Business and Economics. Join me today as we debunk the myths of the social sector. We will cut down the weeds and clear your path for organizational growth. Father Greg Boyle started Homeboy Industries in 1988 as pastor of the Dolores Mission Church in East Los Angeles. It became a way of improving the lives of former gang members and has become a blueprint for over 250 organizations and social enterprises around the world, from Alabama to Idaho to Guatemala and Scotland. The Global Homeboy Network is a group of like-minded organizations committed to impacting the lives of those in their communities. Father Greg Boyle came to the G3X conference as our keynote speaker when we talked about innovations and programs. Um, so, uh... Happy to be with you. I, I, uh, I'm going to do a little introduction of kind of what the heck Homeboy is, and then I'd much rather have this driven by uh, whatever is on your mind. Uh, so uh, uh, Homeboy was born uh, in the time that I was a pastor of uh, Dolores Mission Church, which is the poorest parish in the city of Los Angeles, nestled in the middle of uh, uh, two public housing projects, Pico Gardens and Aliso Village. Together, they comprised the largest grouping of public housing west of the Mississippi. We had eight gangs at war with each other during the time I was pastor there, which is kind of unheard of in public housing. Um, and so uh, I buried my first young person killed because of the sadness in 1988. I buried my 229th two Saturdays ago. Uh, so we started a school, so we had um, uh, there were all these uh, junior high, middle school age gang members who had been given the boot from their home school, nobody wanted them. So they were wreaking havoc in the projects, they were writing on the walls and violent and selling drugs. So I walked out to them and, uh, and I would kind of isolate them and say, hey, you know, if I found a school that would take you, would you go? And then to my surprise, uh, uh, they all said, yeah, you know, I would. So uh, I, then I tried to find a school that would take them and uh, didn't find one, so that kind of forced my hand. So right across the street from uh, the church is our parochial school, our elementary school, grades uh, K to eight. And uh, the first two floors, 
belonged to uh, the school, and the entire third floor was the convent. So one night I got I gathered all the nuns together in the living room, and I said, "Hey, you know, would you mind, you know, moving out?" And we um, <laughs> turned the convent into a school for gang members. And they looked at each other and they went, sure. And that was the extent of their discernment process. <laughs> and then um, gang members came in large numbers to church property, which kind of created a disconnect. People in the parish started to, uh, you know, come up to me and say, wow, uh, our church is supposed to be hermetically sealed. You know, good people in and bad people out. And that was a good gospel challenge. And then uh, the homies themselves said, if only we had jobs, so myself and the women, uh, the projects were mainly made up of women, with children, hardly any men anywhere. We um, marched around the factories that surrounded the housing projects, trying to find felony-friendly employers, and that wasn't so forthcoming. So uh, we just started things, you know. Uh, a homeboy maintenance crew, a landscaping crew, a graffiti removal crew, a crew to build our child care center, all made up of rival enemy gang members from the eight gangs in uh, the parish. Then in 1992, if any were around, or, um, was the unrest in Los Angeles after the Rodney King verdict. And every pocket of poverty in the city ignited except my parish. So the LA Times wanted to know why that was, so a reporter came and asked me questions. I said, well, maybe it's because we had 60 strategically hired rival enemy gang members, maybe the most likely to, uh, to torch their own community who had a reason to get up in the morning and were working side by side by their enemies. And, they had a reason not to gangbang the night before, and they had a reason more to the point of this question, um, not to ignite and torch their own community. So um, the article appeared the next day. The following day, I get a phone call from uh, a movie producer named Ray Stark who read the article. He happened to have $500 million. He summoned me to his uh, Beverly Hills office and he said, um, how should I spend my money, you know? And uh, as I look back on it now, I see that I woefully undershot my request, you know? <laughs> and I said, well, um, you know, there's a, an abandoned bakery across the street from the school. It's got ovens, they don't work, but you know, you could fix them and you could, um, we could put hairnets on gang members and we could bake bread and, I don't know, we could call it Homeboy Bakery, which was the extent of my entire business plan. <laughs> and he said, sure, and so we were off and running. A month later, we started Homeboy Tortillas in the Grand Central Market. Once we had plural, uh, you know, we changed our name from Jobs for Future to Homeboy Industries, as if there was any industry involved in this. <laughs> Uh, not everything worked. Homeboy plumbing was really uh, not that hugely successful. <laughs> Who knew uh, people didn't want gang members in their homes? 
did not see that coming. And, uh, and now nobody, you know, you don't ever intend to do something like this, but we backed our way into becoming now, uh, we're the largest gang intervention rehab reentry program on our planet. So I would say 15,000 folks walk through our doors because I include anybody who walks through our doors. Because everybody walks through, even those who are there from Sydney, Australia, wanting to imagine something different, tours and stuff. They all want to imagine something different. They all want to imagine a world that currently looks different than the one we're, we uh, reside in, you know. They all want to imagine a circle of compassion and then imagine nobody standing outside that circle. Anybody who walks through the doors wants to dismantle the barriers that exclude. But the centerpiece is our 18-month training program. So gang members come from all over LA County. Who knows what the number is, you know, uh, LA County, they would, uh, the sheriff who, who is in charge of counting, say 120,000 gang members, 1,100 gangs. <coughs> Way too high, especially on the number of gang members, but uh, they're in charge of the, uh, the counting. And so I think uh, in LA County, there isn't a, a, a zip code that has a gang that hasn't seen members of that gang walk through our doors. So at the time, you know, there were no exit ramps off uh, this crazy violent freeway. Um, and what did that do, the fact that gang members really couldn't get off the freeway? Well, it kept them on the freeway and it intensified uh, their despair, which increased the violence. So, um, so there's something about Homeboy, uh, you had it up on the screen there, 1992, which is when the bakery began. But the bakery kind of became this, uh, you know, symbol. And, and it galvanized the imaginations of gang members so they could see something else. Uh, so the centerpiece, as I mentioned, is our 18-month training program. Gang members come in, uh, and they want that one because it's a paid gig. Um, we, we're 31 years old now, but you know, there, for the first 15 years, so we were kind of anchored in this job-centric notion. You know, nothing stops a bullet like a job, and that was because we listened to gang members. But once we knew gang members, we kind of went, eh, "No, it's not about a job." That an employed uh, gang member may or may not go back to prison, or an educated one may or may not. But it then became our contention, and now it's our absolute guarantee that a healed gang member will not reoffend. So now we're healing-centric. And so the whole point of the 18 month is a sort of a model of attachment repair. So it, it kind of uh, corresponds to the 18 months it takes for a child, an infant, to connect to the caregiver. It's the same kind of thing. So everyone who walks through our doors, every gang member, comes with what psychologists would call a disorganized attachment. Mom was frightened or frightening. And you can't calm yourself down if you've never been soothed. So we, re we create this community of tenderness, a community of kinship and exquisite mutuality, where uh, gang members find something of a sanctuary from their own chronic 
toxic stress. And once they find rest and respite, then they become the sanctuary that they sought. And then they go home to their kids and for the first time ever, you've broken a cycle because they present that sanctuary to their kids. Uh, I think that's our, our secret sauce is the community of tenderness that, that allows them to find rest, especially from their chronic toxic stress. That's kind of the key thing like with homeless population as well is that we always want to cut to the chase. We go from zero to 60. Let's get them, you know, fast somewhere, job, home. Um, but this is so essential about the healing piece. Uh, and a lot of programs across the country just want gang members to have jobs, that, which is why I'm sort of embarrassed by the nothing stops a bullet like a job thing. Because it won't matter if you can get somebody a job fast as soon as they're out of prison. It, it, they won't keep it. There's just no question. Because it's always about something else. And unless you're engaged in that healing, it doesn't have, it won't last. Um, in 19th century medical history, you know, over here, they had all these vexing diseases and people were dying and they apply everything they thought to apply. Um, medicine, hospitals, doctors, nurses, nothing worked, people kept dying. Then quite inadvertently by accident over here, they stumbled upon the water supply and the sewer system and they addressed that. And what happened to the diseases? Well, they disappeared because the diseases were about something else. And that's the key with the gang thing. Now I should tell you that in 1992 there were a thousand gang-related homicides in LA County. That number's been cut in half and then cut in half again. And every chief of police since Bratton would credit, in a singular way I'd say, homeboy industries. Um, if I go across the country, people will say, how do you get gang members to go to your place? Which is a problem other programs, comparable programs have in the country. We don't have that problem. You know, we have a problem with uh, having enough money to bring as many people in, but we never have to recruit, we never have to convince or cajole. We don't do any outreach to gang members. So I'm in detention facilities as a priest where I hand out my card. I was at a, a juvenile hall and a tough kid, like 13, going on 33. He walked up to me as they, we were all shaking hands as they're walking out of the gym. And he said, How do I get your credit card? I said, I don't know, jack my wallet, I guess. I, oh, you mean this? And so I handed him my, my business card. And he looked at it on this side. He goes, Hey, there's nothing on it. And he goes, yeah, here it is. You know? Sorry. Uh, anyway, so I, if there's any recruiting, I hand out my card at, at all these detention facilities. So the homies that come in the 18-month program, they go to therapy. We have uh, four paid therapists, 47 volunteer therapists, including three psychiatrists. Case management, navigation, a lot of curricular offerings, uh, all the things you would imagine. Um, you know, anger management and parenting and um, 
every imaginable 12-step program. Free tattoo removal, no place on the planet Earth removes more tattoos than we do. We have a designated clinic, normally 9 to 5, Monday through Friday. One paid physician assistant, three laser machines, 43 volunteer doctors. So if any of you are starting to regret your G3X uh, tattoo. <laughs> because of a guy named Frank who wandered into my office and sat in front of my desk and he had just been released uh, two days out of Corcoran State Prison and I didn't know him. And tattooed on his forehead, filling the whole space like was a damn billboard, big black block letters that said, fuck the world. <laughs> and he said, you know, I am having a hard time finding a job. <laughs> Frank, uh, maybe we could put our heads together. <laughs> so naturally, I hired him, and he banked bread for a time. And so then I, I went looking around, trying to find a doctor with a laser machine. Found a dermatologist at um, White Memorial Hospital, a guy named Jack Fanor. And he said, "Okay, I'll give you one hour a month to chip away at Frank's forehead and about a handful of others." And in no time, I had a waiting list of 3,000 gang members who wanted the same treatment. So we couldn't really stay with that arrangement. <laughs> uh, parentheses, Frank is currently a security guard at a movie studio in Hollywood, and there is no trace left of the angriest, dumbest thing he's ever done, proving once and for all that we're all a whole lot more than the angriest and dumbest things we've ever done. And we have our social enterprises, so we have nine of them. The Homeboy Bakery, which is thriving, Homeboy Homegirl um, merchandise where we sell our logo stuff in a store at our headquarters and online. Homeboy Diner, the only place you can get food at City Hall. Uh, Homeboy Silkscreen, which has been around for, I think, 25 years. Thousands of gang members have worked through there. We have a restaurant at LAX Terminal 4, American Airlines, if, uh, you know, uh, you're flying that way. Uh, farmers Markets, we have Homeboy uh, uh, Recycling, which is uh, electronic waste. That's quite a successful venture at the moment. What am I missing? Oh, oh, we have solar panel installation training program. Uh, we have other kind of training programs connected to unions like welding. We have uh, Old Boy Grocery where we sell chip salsa and guacamole and, and uh, chains of uh, supermarkets on both coasts. And Homegirl Cafe where women with records, young ladies from rival gangs, waitresses with attitude will gladly take your order. <laughs> Cater, catering is a big thing. Ask me questions and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you stories. Yeah? I might have a quick question. I just kind of want to know your perspective or um, your approach as it pertains to when we are trying to solicit um, to some of our community business owners as far as looking for job resources and things. 
um, what your approach was. I mean, I know I'm, I'm old school, so I'm like, let me just get in your faces, give me five minutes of your time. But what would you suggest uh, be our approach? Because I do find that, like you said, they didn't want the, the plumber in the house. You know what I mean? Like some of the, some of the jobs that they can because I've got to do a match up my skill sets with what's in the community and what um, some of these business owners are able to offer. And I just kind of want to give you additional insight and maybe possibly suggestions as to approaching them. Yeah, you know, the answer, of course, is always vicinity. If you can get people in the vicinity. Uh, in the early days, especially when it was trying to convince, uh, you know, employers to give people a chance, you know, a lot of times that was the reason I gave talks, because I'd go to a church and maybe there was one employer, it always happened, and they were moved by stories. And they'd come up and say, I'm nervous, but send me somebody. And then you'd send them, and it was always the same thing. Oh my God, this, it's not what you ever anticipated. This guy's really energetic, he's so kind. Covered in tattoos, but he's like, he really wants uh, to make this work. Can you send me more like him, which always happened. So uh, that's when we have that focus. Now we have a little bit more of a uh, seal uh, of the, uh, what do you call it? Good housekeeping seal of approval. You know, it's like, oh, okay, they spent 18 months at Homeway. So there's a, maybe if people are in the know, they kind of know that <coughs> that you're sending them somebody who's been through what we call essential fundamental healing. So they're resilient. They've re-identified who they are in the world. Um, they know the truth of who they are. And then we send them out, and, and this time the world will throw at them what it will, but they're not going to be toppled by it. And maybe employers know, so we have repeat, you know, even uh, repeat employers, people who've done it multiple times. It's kind of if, if in a sort of a Christian faith context where you kind of say, you know, who would Jesus hire? Well, precisely they'd hire, you know, um, Frank, you know, and other people like him. So, so you you try to operate that way. But we, you know, we've we've uh, you know we have an employment referral center. So you know, uh, the workforce development people in our office, you know, uh, take our people. So we want that to be seamless, so that they finish their 18 months with us and they move on to a better paying job and more possibilities. Yeah. But that's, you know, Mother Teresa used to say the problem in the world is that we've forgotten that we belong to each other. And that's kind of the root of just about everything. So, um, I, you know, I think Homeboy has been responsible for softening, you know, the image. So, uh, so we're 31 years old, but the first 10 years, solid, solid 10 years, death threats, bomb threats, hate mail. Never from gang members, because gang members from day one knew that Homeboy was about hope for them. Mm -hmm. But if you demonized gang members, hang on to your hat, you know. And, and often enough, the anonymous letters were from law enforcement. I'm, I'm an LAPD cop. I hate you. You are part of the problem. And it was kind of startling. Never from, never ever from gang members. Once a homegirl named Lisa from the projects, a tough cookie gang member got out of the probation camp. She was 10 feet from my, the door to my office, and this is in our first office, and a little storefront on First Street. She answers the phone very professionally. Homeboy Industries, how may I help you? 
bring that bomb over here, motherfucker. That's correct, yes. 1848, he's first. And I go, whoa. Uh, uh, they said, what, what is that exactly? No, it's a fool who wants to blow the place up. I go, well, how about God bless you and have a nice day? She's giving the mad bomber math quest. But it's hard to retrieve that because that was the air we breathed because the demonizing was so wholesale. And then it was, you know, the friend of our enemy is our enemy. So if, if you demonize gang members, it was really a short hop to demonize me for helping them. Yeah. But I think when people say, uh, we get discouraged and we think we're not making progress and it's not better, whoa. This, all, this, all this work that you're engaged in is for the long haul. And so when you think about that, you know, incrementally, we are, we are nowhere where we were in uh, 1992 or 1988. You know, Daryl Gates, uh, uh, what were the, uh, Operation Hammer, I don't know if anybody remembers those things. All demonizing things, let's lock them up, throw away the key. You know, it's a, it's, it's a vexing thing because, um, especially with research, you know, people will say, uh, I can remember, uh, what's his name, David Kennedy from Operation uh, Ceasefire, or maybe it's just called Ceasefire. Anyway, I was at a conference in San Francisco, I was going to speak towards the end, so I was sitting out there, he was pounding on the table, and he says, people, this works. And I remember writing in my program, yeah, but I bet it doesn't help. And I think that's kind of an essential thing about research. That, and then we need to be careful because not everything that works helps. But everything that helps works. So it's a little bit like saying uh, an oncologist says to the patient, we are going to calm and silence and get rid of this nagging cough. Could you do it? Yes. Would it work? You could. But the cough is indicating lung cancer. So unless you're actually addressing the lung cancer, it doesn't really matter whether you rid, rid the person of the cough. However, if you address the lung cancer effectively, the cough's going to go away anyway. But that's how we are only all the time. There's a new movement now, which is called Stop the Bleeding, uh, and there's a book out. And again, it's the same principle. It takes research. This works, this works, this works. And again, the premise is about changing behavior. And, and the premise is this. If bad thinking got us into this gang violence, then good thinking will get us out of it. Well, it's a, it's a completely preposterous analysis because bad thinking didn't get us into this. There are three profiles of a kid who joins a gang. Only three, there aren't eight, there aren't four, there are only three. One, there's the despondent kid who can't come conjure up an image uh, about what tomorrow might look like. And if you can't see tomorrow or imagine it, your present isn't compelling. And consequently, you won't care whether you inflict harm or duck to get out of harm's way. 
It's about a lethal absence of hope. First profile of the kid who joins the gang. Second profile is the traumatized kid, the damaged kid, who cannot see his way clear to transform his pain, so he keeps inflicting it, transmitting it. And the third profile of the kid who joins the gang is a mentally ill kid. So you have those three profiles, but they're on a continuum of severity. Some kids are more despondent than mentally ill. Some are more damaged than despondent, but that's it. I would bet my life that that's the analysis, not bad thinking got us into this mess. If we believe that, what would we do as a society? Easy, clear. Infuse hope to kids for whom hope is foreign. Help heal the traumatized. Deliver mental health services in a timely and culturally appropriate way. The truth is everybody who walks through homeboy industries, and though they're been in gangs and been in prison, they still have to address those three things on a continuum of severity. Some are still, you know, hard, have a hard time imagining what their future would look like. Or, you know, borderline personality or bipolar or they need meds. Everybody knows what the ACE study is? Mm -hmm. yeah. Adverse, Adverse uh, childhood experiences. And so there's a checklist. You know, I went back to it to kind of double check. I'm zero. I can't, this is, people kind of go, they're shocked at this, you know. Not a single thing on that list can I check off. And there are things like mentally ill parent, your father's in prison, violence at home. Yeah, and so, and so um, what's her name, Naomi, uh, is it Naomi? Uh, that, that our Surgeon General, the first Surgeon General of the state of California wrote a book called The Deepest Well. Uh, it's a hyphenated name, I can't remember her name, but Harris, Burke Harris? Yes, yeah. that's correct. Yeah, so she talks about, you know, the alarm bells should be going off like at four and five. Mm -hmm. uh, every single gang member who walks into our office is a nine or ten, and I always say or ten because male gang members are gonna have a hard time to talk about sexual abuse if that's part of their history. But certainly nine, every single one. Any exceptions? No, there's nobody who's a four or a six. They're all nines, which is to say we're invited to stand in awe at what those folks have to carry rather than in judgment at how they carry it. So that's what it's about. It's not about bad thinking. It doesn't mean that, you know, we always talk about, oh, wait, let's try to move beyond the mind we have. But boy, is that secondary to the trauma and the despair and the mental health issue. But, you know, I, you hope that that kind of thing becomes part of our vocabulary. Because then you have goofball notions. They go, oh, they have a choice. Whoa, 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 hold the hold. Not all choices are created equal. I did not join a gang, but that doesn't make me morally superior to all the homies who have. Trust me. The day won't ever come when I have more courage or I am more noble or I'm closer to God than these folks. So I mean, ask a question and it'll lead to a long ass answer, so. <laughs> Anybody else?
the fact that you're here today is really special. And um, I'm glad that all these folks got to, got to hear you. And thank you, Zoot, for doing what you do and um, making this such a, a energetic and viable place to listen to you. So thanks for being here. Well, on that note, Thank you for listening to 501c3BS, Deprogramming for Organizational Growth. I'm your host, Zoo Velasco. 501c3BS is sponsored by the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton and the Mahalo School of Business. Gianneschi is spelled G-I-A-N-N-E-S-C-H-I. That's G-I-A-N-N-E-S-C-H-I. Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton and the Mahalo School of Business. Check out my Twitter feed at 501c3bs, my webpage at zootvelasco.com, and my book, The First 100 Days, on Amazon. The music is provided to us from our good friends at the traditional Brazilian choral group, Grupo Falso Baiano and Amy Molinelli. Find them at grupofalsobaiano.com. Thank you for listening. Have a great day free from BS.